you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I uh, would love for you to turn to Genesis 1 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one right in front of you um, along the hymnal racks. Um, I believe that God's Word today will be especially good to us. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Most of us know how to find it, and most of us know probably what it says. Um, but this is uh, the beginning. Um, Genesis, of course, the beginning. But this is the beginning of what I believe will be a very important and uh, a, a journey that we're going to take that is really going to grow us as Christians. Um, sometimes, you know, my goal as a pastor is to always bring something comforting to God's people to help us in the everyday challenges of life, the practical issues of life. Uh, but I do believe there is, a, there is time that we need to grow as believers and understand uh, or seek at least to understand the mind of God in a way that maybe we haven't before. So this may be a different kind of study over the next couple of weeks, one that's unique and new for us as a church, but I believe that it's one that we will be better Christians because of. And if you aren't a Christian, if you're just stumbling into this uh, message today, if you're watching with us and you are just interested about God and about Christianity, it's also the perfect time uh, to, to, to tune in and to be a part of our conversation because this kind of lays out the basics that we all as Christians should believe and should agree with. Uh, but it also kind of, I think, will convince even the most skeptical um, why being a Christian is the greatest decision you can ever make. Um, you know, as a pastor, I'm always challenging myself to find new and fresh and more importantly effective ways to communicate God's word to teach God's people to teach God's church um, you know the church as in you you are the bride of Christ uh, you are his pride and his joy you may not know this about yourself or think this about yourself but you are the pride and joy of Jesus Christ you are his delight you are the apple of his eye you belong to God and in him you find your fullness, your completion. So we come to him, and I believe you've come to him this morning because you know that he holds the treasure of the universe. And through him, and by knowing him, your life can find direction and shape and meaning. And I hope that's why you've come today. And, and of course, I'm right there with you, um, delighting in him and desiring him. You know, if you're new to all this, uh, just know that true believers, we don't come out of obligation, we don't come out of force, we don't come out of fear, we come out of adoration and anticipation of what God has to say and of what God wants to do in our lives. We follow Jesus because we know, and, and I, I hope you can say this with me, we know there is no better life apart from Him. We know there is no greater joy than that which comes from knowing Him. We know there is no remaining rest apart from Him. We know there is no sustaining peace outside of Him. Other than by and through Him, there are none of these things. So as a pastor in his church, I'm always praying and preparing to search God's Word so that I might proclaim God's Word in a way that both reaches and raises the bar that you've set. Maybe you don't set a bar as a Christian, but I hope that you do because we come to church because we believe God's Word is something good to teach us and impart to us. And my goal as a pastor is to obviously reach that bar, but raise it even more in terms of what it means to know God and what there is to know about God and how knowing Him can change your life. Church and the proclamation of God's Word ought to at least reach the bar that we've set. We ought to always leave with that box checked. But because of God's Word being so rich... And because this person is so unique and remarkable, the bar ought to always be raised with every deep dive into any given text, chapter, or verse. And for this reason, every spring we like to make sure that our pre-Easter series is extra special. Uh, this year I thought we'd consider a question, a question that I believe it's answered 
apart from Easter, but because of Easter, it's answered in a better way. As in, apart from Easter, this question is going to be answered generally, so we're going to find how the Bible answers this question in a general, broad way. But we're also, as we get closer and closer to Easter, we're going to see how the Bible answers this question in a particular sense or in a specific way. Sense. And we'll hear those words a lot over the next couple of weeks, general in particular, general and specific. The question I want us to consider, it's a pretty lighthearted subject, it's something you might have learned in kindergarten, but we're just going to re- review it. Um, maybe not in kindergarten, but you learned at some point. No, it's something that I don't think will spark a lot of opinions at all. It's just a small lunchtime conversation starter. And the question is, why did God create the world? Just a small Elementary question, right? Actually, it's a pretty, pretty deep, intense theo- theological question to ask, isn't it? Uh, a question that uh, may require a lot of Bible and several weeks of conversation around it. But I know this sort of question has so many layers to it. And I think you're up for this study. I think that we are, as Christians, this season primes us for this kind of a study. And I think that we want to ask this question, even if it may at first seem a little intimidating. This sort of question has so many layers to it. I mean, when you ask, why did God create the world? We're considering more than just the planet. I mean, we're, we're considering people and all different kinds of people at that. We're considering the nations. We're talking the good things that happen, the bad things that happen, whether he intends all things, allowed some things. I mean, we can't have this conversation without covering all of those, uh, those, those questions, right? And while we could only have a general conversation about why would God create any given world, we know the world he created, don't we? As in, this isn't just about, hey, why would God create things? We know the world he created, and we know what it's like to live in it, and we know what it's like. And it's not very like him, is it? And while there's a lot we can say about it, I don't think we can have this conversation without also slanting this question and asking it in a different way. Why did God create this world? This world that is far from him. This world that is in rebellion against him. And of course, it's easy to say, well, that wasn't his intention. Of course it wasn't. Uh, It's pretty easy to assume, but one has to wrestle with this equally obvious reality that he had to have saw it coming, so he created knowing that this would happen. I mean, why would he do that? And you don't have to be a scholar to answer with confidence. Of course he saw it coming, yet he still did it, didn't he? We're here. This This isn't some dream world. We are living in a world that God created, but a world that is far from what we would think you know, a place created by God would be like because it's not perfect. It's far from perfect. It's kind of a mess. The easy answer, uh, you know, and, and the easier answer, and I'm not trying to demean anyone, you know, why would God create this, this world and why would God let this world continue to exist being so far from him as it is? The easy answer, and I'm not trying to demean anybody, but the easy answer is, well, God created us and keeps us alive because he loves us. But there has to be more than that. There has to be a better motive than that because why would God create a world that would rebel against him full of people who wouldn't budge no matter how much he loves them? Because isn't it true that the world is full of people that no matter how much God shows them his love, they don't budge? Isn't it true that there have been times in our life when we have been so rebellious against God, no matter how much we know he loves us, we don't change a bit? So there has to be a better motive behind God's creation. Yes, he loves us, but I think there's more to it. We get this image of God who created the world because he wanted someone to love, struggling to get people to respond to him. And I don't think that's the reason. Not to say that he doesn't love, he does. And not to say that he doesn't work hard to get people to respond to him, he does. But why? 
did God create this world? What was his purpose? What was his motive? What was his ambition? Can these questions be answered? Maybe you think these are just questions that we shouldn't ask, but I think these are questions that someone might ask you, and we need to be able to answer them, and I think God wants us to consider them. And in fact, the Bible, I think, clearly addresses these questions. And now it's easy to split the Bible in half, old and new, based on several different, different things, but maybe this is a way to split the Bible up in a way that you haven't realized before. We're going to learn the Old Testament answers the question, why did God create the world? Pretty specifically, pretty explicitly, pretty plainly. Why did God create the world? But then we're going to find the New Testament answers the question that we ask, why did God create this world as in a world that is broken, a world that's a mess, a world that is far from what he intended it to be? What we're going to discover is that while we can answer the first question, there are hurdles that will come upon creation which made it impossible for us in the world to live up to God's intentions, which we know that's the fall, that's sin, which of course begs the second question, and I believe that Easter will answer both that question, enable God's desire to be made into reality, as it enables the world to be that way he wanted it to be from the beginning. So this is the perfect time to consider these fundamental, super heavy questions, because when we think about Easter as Christians, obviously, we sit up a bit straighter, We listen a bit closer, we look more intently because we know this season is what gives our faith a reason. We as Christians believe that Easter is what gives us our faith. We are Christians because of Easter. There would be no Christianity without Easter. I think that's easy to agree on. Easter is the beginning of Christianity, but it's not the beginning. The beginning, of course, is written about naturally in the book of beginnings, and that's Genesis. Genesis 1, among many other texts, answers the question, why did God create the world? But Genesis 1 assumes that we have already answered an even greater question. If you look down at your Bibles, I'm pretty sure that no matter what translation you're reading out of, the first four verses of any English translation are all the same. There may be a comma missing in some of our Bibles compared to others, but that's okay. I'll forgive you for that. (laughs) But how about this? On the count of three... We're going to read the first four verses of Genesis 1-1 together because I'm pretty sure we're all going to say the same four words. Um, so on the count of three, one, two, three. In the beginning, God. Can we say that again? In the beginning, God. So what does this verse assume that we already believe? That there is a God. That's pretty, right? This verse doesn't say, well, let me explain to you about God and let me tell you why he exists. This verse assumes that we have already answered the even greater question, does God exist? Of course, we believe so. As believers, we see God's existence as self-evident, made known through creation itself. We affirm God's existence as testified by the scriptures through the history of Israel, the life of Jesus, the persistence of the church. The Old Testament reveals to us our God by the name of Yahweh. It's in your Bibles as Lord. We've talked about this for a whole month just recently. But there are two key passages that we often cite that introduce to us the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of the whole world. Exodus 3 verse 14, we learn his name. God said to Moses, I am who I am, or that's Yahweh. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. So the all-powerful, all-encompassing, self-existing one, I am the one true God who first revealed himself to Abraham. I am the God who's going to reveal himself to Israel and then reveal himself to the whole world. So this is the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, the one and only God. His name is Yahweh. We call him Lord 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is a confession the Jews learned about their God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So they had one God, and he is united in his spirit. He's united in his character, and that's important for a minute from now. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. So what do we learn from these two descriptions of the one true God? He is powerful. I am. He is all-encompassing, as in he created all things. He holds all things together. He is the one and only ruler of the universe. But also he is personal. Because what does this verse tell us? You can love him, and you can't love someone who can't love you back. So there's a relational aspect of this. There's a personal aspect of God. You can love him, you can know him, you can walk with him. That's what that heart, soul, might. As in, we can love him with our heart, we can know him with our minds, and we can walk with him in our actions in our daily lives. So if anyone says, what is your God like, or who is your God? We serve the one true God who you can love, who you can know, and who you can walk with. Genesis 1 tells us that this God created the world. And while it may seem this passage mainly tells us how we exist, we also gather from a handful of verses why we exist. Maybe you've never looked at Genesis 1 as, as, as proof of why God created the world, but I believe it's more important, it's more about that then it is just about how. Yes, it tells us how God created. Pretty simple. He just made it happen. But it's more about why we exist. So I want to look at verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to jump down to verse 26 through the end of the chapter. So we're bookending the creation story. And of course, the in-between is as important. But for time, I want to focus on the first five verses and the last five verses. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering, moving over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light. It was good. God divided the light from darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. So the evening and morning were the first day. So day one, big things happen. There's a light and there's a darkness. God is present in creation and he's talking and things are happening. Then we realize that we read on that God separated the waters from the atmosphere. He made the land. He made the stars. He made the sun, the moon, and all the other things in the universe. And then he makes the animals but then he's not done. Verse 26. And God said, let us, let us make man in our image. So notice the pluralness of that, the plurality, us and our, us and our. Our image, according to our likeness, let, ha, let him or them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle um, of the land and all. In the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we know that he created Adam first and Eve after that. So that's, that's why there's a distinction there. Then God blessed them. And listen to this. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the every living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth. Every tree whose fruit yields seed to you shall be your food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And indeed, it was very good. Why was it very good? Because God made it. 
Very good. So the evening and morning were the sixth day. So here we have the bookends of creation week. You know, in our world, we have festivals that last a whole week. We have, you know, spirit week at school. We have holiday weeks. We have shark week in the summertime. But God one day sat back and said, you know what? We ought to have a creation week. And everybody in heaven was like, oh, that's a great idea. What is that going to look like, God? And he says, just watch. So, you know, we have little weeks. God had a pretty big week back in the day, didn't he? So creation week, I want you to notice some details that can be seen when we first group, when we group the first day and the sixth day together. Again, these verses don't just tell us how creation happened. They tell us why creation happened. So here is the why, or you can see the why of creation in two things. The plurality of God and the purpose he gives to man, the purpose he gives to humanity. So the why of creation is detailed to us in the plurality of God and the purpose given to humanity. Now, what does that mean, plurality of God? Well, notice in the first few verses, we see God at large over creation, sending forth both his spirit and his word to work within it, right? That's what verse one, we have God. Verse two, we have his spirit. Verse three, we have his word, and things are getting done because of his word and his spirit are working under his banner, and then we see in the last section, God refers to himself in the second person and uses this word, let us, in our image. So God is talking in a plural sense. So who's he talking to? He converses and confers with both word and spirit, suggesting their equality and their unity and their fellowship. We are introduced to both God, the spirit, and the word in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And then in verses 26, we see let us in ours. So we have a, a conversation going on within this. We don't know what it is at this point in the story, but this Godhead. And within God, there's a plurality. Does that make sense? Now, this isn't a new concept to us, but maybe this explains something we've only ever taken others' words for. This shows that our God is both one and three. He is one in, as in terms he's unified, but he's three in persons. United in essence, threefold, three distinct entities. Father, Word, and Spirit. Of course, the Word we also call the Son because the Word became the Son, Right? Now, our minds can comprehend how God can be both one and three. That's okay. We're little, tiny humans. I'm not insulting you. I'm insulting me. We're little humans that can't remember much at all. We don't know where we put our glasses, right? So how can we ever comprehend the Trinity? It's okay to admit that we don't understand it. I lose my glasses all the time. Maybe you don't, but that's just something I do. I'm little, and I'm confused, and I can't figure stuff out, but I can accept that that's okay, and you can too. But this scripture reveals to us that God is both one and he is three. United in his essence, but distinct in his entities. Our minds, again, can't get a hold of this, but we see it, don't we? We see it on display, and there's other, ways, other places to see it in the Bible. New Testament goes on to expand on this. We're told the eternal word of God became flesh. The word enters creation, wrapped in flesh, the Son of God. The Spirit continued to be sent forth by God the Father to work his will out. Jesus told the, he, tell people he was equal to God. He said, I and my Father are one. And he also said that there is an equal, in essence, spirit that's coming into the world. So clearly we see one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So what we learn from this, God has always existed in full unity and fellowship as a trinity. So here's why we're talking about this. God has existed in full unity and fellowship. Notice they're having a conversation about this. 
Something else we know about God. What does the New Testament tell us about God? It tells us that God is love. That God's love. And what we see in Genesis 1, fellowship and unity are on display within the Trinity. So in Genesis 1, 1 through 3, we see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all at work. And the overflow of their unity becomes creation. And we see here in this conversation they have with each other, there is a unity within each other. There's a constant exchange of love for one another. So God is love and we see his love on display because the Father loves the Son, who loves the Spirit, who loves the Father. There is a unity in their love for one another. That's very important for us to understand. So what happens in Genesis 1 out of the result of their love for each other? Genesis 1, 1 through 3 the point of overflow of God's union and love which led to creation. So do you understand that God has always existed? That he's existed for eternal past and we don't know what he was up to. But at some point, the point of overflow of God's union and love, Father, Son, and Spirit, it hit a point to where creation happened. Now God made a choice. It didn't just happen on accident. But their love for each other led to this earth led to this universe. So why did God create out of love for one another? The Father, Son, and Spirit. They created this world. Now, he didn't do it passively. He had a motive. What is the motive, though? Why did they, they, they didn't just say, we're bored. What are we doing this for? God made humans the climax of a creation week in his own image so that we would point to him Isn't that what Genesis 26 through 31 tells us? He made people in his image so that then the world will be full of people in his image. So Genesis 1, 26 through 31, we find God's motive in creation is his own glory. So hear that very clearly. God's motive in creation is his own glory because what happened when he makes people in his image suddenly there's a whole new universe filled with people in his image and as they populate the earth more images of God are everywhere billions of images of God so that no one could ever miss the point of creation the purpose of humanity is to know God love God and show God to glorify God that is why God created for his glory Isaiah 6.3 says the whole earth is full of his glory. That's proven in the world being full of human image bearers. Beyond us, nature displays, declares the glory of God. The rest of the universe makes us seem like microscopic particles, suggesting there's a bigger reason than just us. It's all about God. It's about God's glory. We play a role, a very special role, in that we aren't just created to live for his glory. We're created in the image of God, to bring even greater glory to God. So creation, let me make it very clear, creation was not because God was incomplete. There's some that teach this. Creation wasn't because God was bored or lonely or missing something. God was complete and whole and united without us. I don't want a God dependent on me, number one. You know, I don't want a God who needs me because I'm not always present. I don't always show up. Some days I feel like showing, you know, going out. So listen, God didn't need us. And that's a good thing. Creation isn't also about progression, as in God needed to become something he wasn't because he was already who he was. He was already complete, already whole, already God. Creation is about bringing more glory to an already glorious God. The ever-expanding universe measuring up to the ever-expanding God. 
Jonathan Edwards said, there is no argument of neediness on God's part because as a fountain overflows, so did God. And the overflow of God's glory led to creation. So what is God's motive? His own glory. Why do we exist? Why does everything exist? God exists and therefore we exist for his glory. Isaiah 43, God says over the whole universe, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, I formed and I've made. Now just heads up. Our rebellious, our selfish hearts will hear this and reject this. I want it to be all about me. And there's a large portion of the church that makes it all about me. My flesh hears this and it protests aggressively against this. I've taken seven plus years of school, studied theologian after theologian. I've read book after book after book and my flesh still does not like this. I still don't want this to be true because I want it to be about me. This flies in the face of our world's self-promotion culture. But the Bible teaches us there is no self-preservation in self-promotion, rather only in self-humiliation before God. That's not to say that our well-being is an afterthought. No, it's wrapped into this. It depends on our living for someone greater than ourselves. One of our favorite passages of Scripture that teaches how true self-preservation is achieved and teaches us why we are created is Psalm 23. King David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me. Notice what God is doing to him because he's submitted to God. And what is the reason for all of this? For his name's sake. We see this refrain all throughout the Old Testament. This is why God created anything in any of us for his name's sake. When his name is exalted, his people are always benefactors. Consider the Garden of Eden. God placed man in a paradise, not a dump, not a lonely place, in a paradise with all that he needed and all that he could ever ask for. Notice over in chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord took God, put him in the Garden of Eden, and he gives him a commandment, tend it and keep it. And then he says, you can have of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So the second and third commandments are given to man in these verses, the first being back in chapter 1. At this point, man has three commandments. Fill the earth and subdue it, as in make my image go everywhere and all over the place. Make more of me image bearers. Subdue it, as in glorify God through your existence. You know why the Old Testament says no idols? Because we are images of God. That's why the Jews didn't have idols. They didn't have images of God because they were to see the image of God in everybody they ever were eyeball to eyeball with. Fill the earth. Work it. Keep it. Build it. As in, hey, you've got a job to do. Work isn't a, a curse. Work isn't part of the fall. Work preceded it. So fill the earth. Glorify God through the images that you spread. Work, keep, and build it up. And then there's one note. Resist the tree of knowledge, good and evil. What do all of these say about our reason for being? We exist, we are created for God's glory. Not for ours. We don't exist for our glory, for our disposal, for whatever we want to do. This isn't a story about me, it's about God and how we should be fiercely devoted to Him. 
We are made by God in the image of God for the glory of God. Fill the earth with his image. Work on earth for his glory. Be obedient to him and resist what he says to resist. We were created to delight in and exalt in and glorify him. And you know what happens when we realize this? We are set free from so much that distracts us and we are given access to a so much of a better life. Suddenly the things that we worry about, obsess over, and focus on grow dim, and a lot of other things become more pressing, but not as burdens, but as blessings. Think about this. When God made Adam and Eve, he placed them in a garden where they had all they needed. Don't you see that God's nature of love means that which glorifies him also blesses us? So hey, fill the earth, work the earth, you're in paradise. I'm going to give you what you need. If you glorify me, you'll be blessed. Even if you can't always obviously or immediately detect what I'm blessing you with, it may sometimes come across as not the best, but it's part of God's plan. Yes, God gave them an out, but in front of them, he gave them everything. All they had to do was delight in him and find life in him. You know what that tells? You know what that tells us about what it means to live for God's glory? As in, what can we ask? We ask the question, what does it mean to live for God's glory? That we all we need to do is find all our satisfaction in Him. That's what was before Adam and Eve. Find your life in me. Find your satisfaction in me. There's a lot of things going to distract you, but don't let it take your eyes off of me and what I've given you. Everything is from me and for me. Rejoice and represent me in it all. That's what it means to live for God's glory. Find satisfaction in His rule and His will. Everything is from Him and for Him, even if it doesn't always feel like it. Rejoice and represent Him in it all. What does Genesis 1 and 2 tell us about God's creative purpose? He made good things because He is good, and as long as they are used for Him, they'll accomplish good. So if we live for His glory, we won't be overwhelmed, we won't be exhausted, we will be sustained, and we will be satisfied. On the contrary, this explains why there was an out. Maybe you've wondered before, why did God put a tree in the garden that could curse them? Why did God give them an option? Why did God allow them an out? Why wouldn't He just say, hey, you know, it, it, it's my way or the highway, hope you get used to it. Why was there a tree planted there that could ruin everything? You know why? Clearly, established in creation is the fact that our joy is found in obedience to God. God gave them a door. He said, if you don't want to obey me, that's fine. But you're going to learn. If you disobey me, you cost yourself joy. That our joy is tied to obedience to God. There is no other way to find joy outside of obedience to God. And we learn that the hard way, don't we? Our joy is found in God's glory. Lasting joy is found in everlasting glory, which is not of ourselves. It is in God alone. So every single day when we wake up, no matter what we wake up to, who we wake up with, where we wake up at, every single day is a glorious opportunity for you. As you rise out of bed and go through the motions and get ready for a job that you love or a job that you hate, as you are part of a family that, cherish, that you cherish or that is challenging, in a relationship that is perfect or in pieces, every day, whether you have all you want or you have a lot that you want, Regardless of those things, every single day matters. It counts because it's a day that God has made and a day in which you have a single reason to persist. 
in which your motivation is to be that which motivated God. We exist to behold the light in and reflect God's glory, the beauty and the worth and the goodness and the greatness of God in every possible way. That is your reason for every single day. That is what should drive you in any and all things. No matter what we face, we exist to behold and to light in and reflect the magnificence of our God. As it all comes from Him and is for Him, we can rejoice and represent Him in all things. Paul shrinks this down to this simple idea. Whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Every day, we must, we must, if we are to achieve creation's goal, bring our lives in line with God's creative purpose. John Piper puts it this way, God will be glorified when we are most satisfied in him. All this sounds obvious and ideal, yet it's so difficult to realize in our lives, isn't it? You can, you can be honest, I'll be honest, this isn't easy. As much as this makes sense, as much as we say, of course, that's why we exist. It, also, it sounds kind of shallow compared to what the world tells us that we exist for. Truth be told, we don't have a desire to seek God on most days, let alone be satisfied in Him. It's true about us because we know the story of Adam and Eve. They chose the out, they chose the fruit, they chose disobedience, and they chose death. And every generation has followed suit, haven't they? Haven't we? Romans 1 takes their story and makes it our story. It says, For God's invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so, are, so they or we are without excuse. But here's our problem. Although they knew God and they did not honor God, Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Who's they? It's every creature since Adam and Eve, every person. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Let's go back. But they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere pictures. If that isn't as relative today, I don't know what is. And now this is the sentence in the condition of all of creation. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As in we don't even think about it. We think about me and us and our and what we want. So why did God create the world for his glory? How good did that work out? By all accounts, not very. Didn't God know this would happen? Couldn't God have made known? I mean, couldn't God have known? I mean, if his motive was his own glory, why would he do something that brought so much more grief and disgrace to his name? Which brings back our second question. Why did God create this world? I mean, if his goal was to have a people, people that glorified his name, he knew what was going to happen with this place, so why would he go through with it? You see, this is why Easter is the perfect season to ask these questions, because Easter is essential for answering this and enables us to truly understand and embrace the reason we were all made for. Enables us to truly live and relish in living for God's glory. Why did God create this world that rejected his glory and embraced sin? Because work with me here. Easter was always the goal. Easter was always the plan. Yeah, God knew it was going to blow up. 
And he did it anyway. Because he had something, it's hard to imagine, greater in mind. It's through Easter that God was ultimately glorified in a way that best captures his love. Even more so than the unity we see in creation story. The world broken, sinful, tragic, created so that God might display his glorious grace so that God's immeasurable nature of grace might be fittingly and effectively put on display where, you ask? On an old, rugged cross. The Father is glorified in that he would punish his own son rather than every one of us, exchanging our sin for his favor because he loves us. The Son is glorified in that He would choose saving others rather than ruling over them, bringing forgiveness to all creatures because He loves us. The Spirit is glorified in that He would raise up the Son from death and bring resurrection to all creatures because He loves us. The cross is this mountain peak of God's creative purpose. It was always His plan because the cross and resurrection is an even greater overflow of God's love than creation because it was all done out of grace. So, you could say, this world exists for the glory of God's grace revealed in the saving work of Jesus. So why did God make this world so that Jesus could die on a cross and display the grace of God to all creation so that we would know who God really is. Whereas Adam resisted total obedience, rejected total satisfaction, failing to glorify God, Jesus was totally obedient, fully satisfied, and gave maximum glory to God, ushering in an undeniable witness to all of creation. God's glory should be our goal because God's glory is our gain. Restoring God's intent for creation that His good would equal our glory. God permitted this world so that he might display his glory through his grace, by his Son, for our sin. God permitted this world so that he might display his glory by his grace, by his Son, for our sin. This was always God's plan. Humanity at its lowest would give way to glory at its highest as grace was dispatched for those that were farthest away from God. Why did God create the world for his glory? Why did he create this world for his glory? How should we live out our lives for his glory? Because his glory is everlasting, it's resurrecting, and it's saving. There's more to this conversation. Generally speaking, the Bible tells about the diversity of the world, the nations that God filled the planet with. There's also the question of suffering. The Bible wrestles with this, and we will too. Of course, there's particular aspects of living for God's glory when it means what it means to be a Christian and how being a Christian is the exclusive way that we can come to God. The goal of the next few weeks is that we might fully understand and appreciate the gifts of God in creation. And I hope today gives us a greater appreciation and reverence for life itself. We'll broaden this beyond the general gifts to the specific reasons to be a Christian But for now, Easter shows us that Christianity is the destination of creation. Easter builds on God's common grace, revealing His saving grace to all people. And I'll show you a sneak peek. 
that really inspired this whole series. It led me down this road and up this mountain. When Jesus dies on the cross, what are his famous words that he shouts? It is finished. It is finished. What was finished? There's a lot of things that we can, go, we can say about that. But the big picture, I don't want you to miss... The Greek word behind finish is a Greek word, telos, which means the principal end, the aim, the grand and ultimate purpose and plan. God's goals for creation were now achievable. Out of the overflow of his creative love and redemptive love, we could now be in a loving relationship with him. We could now live for his glory and enjoy his goodness. It's impossible without Jesus. So Easter answers the question, why did God create the world? Why did God create this world? So that we might have life in Him. It's only found in Him. That we would see and savor and show His glory through our lives. It it focuses our attention totally on what it means to follow and know Jesus. See, if you're here today, you have life. You're a creature made in God's image. The question is, what are you doing with it? Now that you know where it came from and why it came to you through the pathways that it came, what are you doing with your God-given life? Are you living for and only for His glory? Do you delight in knowing and showing God to the world? Our flesh resists this, but may we know and trust and practice what we've learned today. Our joy and satisfaction is only found in living for Him. Living for God's glory will ultimately mean God's goodness will live through us. Jesus died so that you might know this. He lives that you might receive this and show this. Why did God create this world? For His glory. And his glory is your good. His everlasting, sufficient glory is our lasting, efficient joy. We exist out of an overflow of his love. In him, we find an abundance of lives. So, may his glory be the overflow of our lives. May our lives tell one story to God be the glory. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for the opportunity to proclaim your word. Lord, I don't understand all that, it, that we've talked about today. I don't have a perfect understanding of all the minute details of creation and of your heart. But I know that you are a good creator. You are a glorious creator. And the Bible tells a story of how you did all of this so that you might display your glory through the death of Jesus on the cross. That you might show us your kindness and the richness and the immeasurable nature of your grace. So we stand in awe of this today. We are made in your image, image bearers who rebelled against you, but we are given a way back in through the death of Jesus on the cross so that we might successfully live for your glory lord we are so selfish in our own minds we are so in our flesh we don't see the bigger picture we see what we want we see what makes us happy we see what is pleasurable we see what is so short and lived and immediate 
Lord, help us to just step back and see why we exist and what you invite us into every single day to live for your glory and your glory alone because it all is from you. It all is for you. May we do all and live it all for your glory alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.